You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So Jay, we were talking before I hit record about the idea of fixing problems, not fixing symptoms. And what was the example you were talking about? Yeah. So I'm preparing a speech that I'm going to give next week at a DSI fusion event in San Luis Obispo. By the time this comes out, I'm sure the video will also be live on our YouTube channel. But one of the things that I'm going to talk about is standardized work offsets and how they're beautiful. Whether you probe or edge find or Hymer, a known location, and then you use that one location in all of your setups in fusion as just like, this is the default file that we start from and it's got the origin in place, then you program everything off of that. So I know that the pushback when I've explained this to different people is that, well, that works, but I would prefer to probe my workpiece because what if it's cut too short or too long? If it's too long, that's pretty bad because now you've got an edge that instead of taking off a 10% radial engagement on your tool, now you're like 40, 50, 80, 100% if it, depending on how bad of a saw cut it could be and the diameter of the tool. My thing is, well, the answer is not to solve that through probing, which is slow. If you have a probe, that's a cost that's expensive. Yep. The answer is to fix the problem where it's a problem. That's an upstream. That's a sawing problem. Well, Jay, our suppliers, they want a plus or minus 50 thousands. Great. Ask them if they'll go to 20 thousands, get a different supplier get a different saw. You were commenting that there's a lot you can do to tune a bandsaw. Yeah. Our bandsaw, when the blade gets dull and the saw gets kind of out of whack and it gets a bunch of chips packed inside it, starts cutting kind of wonky. So if you've got a very wide, thin piece of bar stock, or you've got a tall piece of stock, you will see the cut wander and you won't get perpendicular ends. Yeah. That's and right. so you can always just throw those in a vise and square up one end and go from there. But it's preferable to have the saw cut correctly and have mm-hmm. the stock sized correctly. I was thinking about this and I'm just now getting my feet wet with in-process probing because I know a lot of guys running Brothers are using a combination of Renishaw hardware and modified Bloom-based probing macros that are supplied by Yamazin. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but that's not what I'm using. We've been using Renishaw EasySet software since I got my first mill and my first probe. And so I'm out of step with the way a lot of other brother owners are using probing and the routines they're using and the way they're thinking about it and the codes they're talking about, they're just not the same code that I'm working with. And so I've mostly stuck to probing work coordinates. For certain jobs, we do standardized palletized work and we have an origin. It's in the setup. It's shared across dozens and dozens of files. And I love that approach. But that's also often when we're machining materials where a little bit extra tool engagement here or there is not a big issue. Mm-hmm. For machining high-density plastics like a seal, taking a 3 8 cutter and getting 30% or 40% radial as opposed to 15% radial in a seal, not a big deal. Yeah. As long as your work holding, as long as however you're clamping the part isn't going to like pull through the edges and let the part fly. Mm-hmm. So I've really enjoyed standardizing work holding on that and I've largely gotten around not really being able to do a good job within process probing or any job at all within process probing by standardizing that work holding. But there are certain parts that we make where we've got one piece flow and a set of soft jaws where the soft jaw takes two parts, an op one on the left and an op two on the right, and you just flip from left to right and run the thing. Like That was an early experiment that we did a long time ago with one piece flow, back-to-back ops, two separate setups, each piece of stock probed and set up separately. And We have had in the past issues where an employee went and set up the saw and cut a bunch of bar stock and the bar stock was just like 30 or 40 thou too short. Mm -hmm. So that when you went to do the skim pass at the end, face it off and get all the saw marks out on the second side, it wouldn't hit. Yeah, And then you can chase it around, you can reprobe, you can offset your Z and rerun those, but you just end up chasing things around. You just end up chasing them around and you end up with non-standard parts. Yeah, that's right. In in part of my research for this, I did a time study. Is it faster to cut air if your part is actually oversized or is it faster to probe? And ah. then even if it probes and say you have a, a part that's held, okay, so in a six inch vise, if the part is wide in X and you're holding it, that's your saw cut, you still have to reprogram that. 
because yeah, now it knows where the corner or the center of the part is and it can adjust accordingly, but it's still extra material. It didn't solve the problem. It just told you that, Hey, we're going to split the difference between if it's too long or not centered. Yep. So yeah, you're going to get an even radial overload. Yes. Not an uneven asymmetrical radial overload. Yeah. And still that unevenness is still a defective part going into it. So it's actually faster to cut air on one or both ends of the part because that's a lot faster, especially using an adaptive toolpath to actually remove that material that may or may not be there. That's much faster than probing. And if you're working parts in a vise, if you have a work stop and one end of your part is unconstrained, then if you've got extra length, it just sits there. But if you're using a fixture, Mm -hmm. you can have the fixture built in such a way that parts that are beyond a certain amount of overage simply won't seat in the fixture. The pocket won't allow them. And you can use a really, really small registration surface as a default go, no go gauge for that. Yeah. Do you guys have a workflow templated for how you make the series of decisions that produce a pallet layout? No, that's an interesting thought. Like I've been working, when, I, when I get together with my, one of my manufacturing guys. Yeah. Just something as simple as like when I was putting together a written workflow to share with one of my employees, as he learns to build holster molds from modeling a solid, an actual firearm and giving him a description of these are the steps that I work through this, this, and this, and at this step, I have to consider whether this factor is involved. I have to consider sure. at this point, whether the firearm has this feature and here's how I normally program around it if it does. And things like looking at a particular part and saying, based on how many edges I need access to, do I have the ability to use the fixture as a go, no go gauge is a possible fixture feature mm-hmm. that you don't have to have, but you can include if it's part of your templated checklist of features we want to include if we can. Yeah. The closest thing would just be the lean principle of the order in which you improve things through safety, quality, simplicity, and speed. So safety, okay, do we have the part sunk in deep enough into the fixture so the clamp, if it's a pit bull clamp, gets a good bite on it? There's safety quality. Can this part be put in backwards? Can it be put in if it's too short, too long, if the bar stock varies? Because a lot of times we had a batch of bar stock that was at the maximum it was 10 inch 60 thou. And we called the supplier. We're like, this is not fitting in our fixture. Why is this bar stock so bad? And they said, nope, it's 62 thousands plus or minus. Okay. Well, you got us by two thousands, but it would not fit into an existing fixture. Okay. So well, did you, you have to take a skim pass on one wall to take it you down? You know what? I think that's when we actually started because we'd seen variation and typically it's like 10, 15 thousands. We'd never seen 62. We said, okay, well, we can't have this again. What is the variation? And they said, oh, this came from Sapa instead of Kaiser. Great. Now the PO, we solve it at the problem, the root problem. Now the POs is Kaiser only. Any domestic manufacturer. This was years ago. Sapa got into some big trouble for fudging their certs, their certifications on material. And so we just stopped using them across the board. And Kaiser, I think they may have taken up some market share on that, but Solved the problem, went straight back to Kaiser. It was fine. We're typically Mm. within 10 thou. But that was a good example of designing a fixture where the raw bar stock did not fit, not on the socket length, on the extrusion width of 10 inches. Yeah. You said something else. Okay. So, no, you have a dedicated checklist that you have them look at when they're designing a mold. As a teaching tool, I want to make sure that if there's a consistent series of decisions I make that branch at certain key points, that they're aware of that question and answer flow of, do I need to have this? Yes, then this. Do I need to do this? Yes. Then we build it in at this stage in the model. Do I need to have this kind of feature? Yes. We wait until here and then we add that feature. Because one of the biggest things that I've found as I've been teaching my employees to model is that things that I have learned through trial and error that feel intuitive to me now weren't intuitive to me when I started and aren't intuitive to them necessarily. And so even basic things like having somebody draw a bunch of test parts and then realizing that they did dimensions first and then constraints. And so there's way too many dimensions and things that should be symmetrical are actually dimensioned off an edge, not a Mm -hmm. center line. And like we went to actually just, I had to make a slight change to the part. I shifted one wall by 30 thou 
And I looked at it and I said, it looks a little off-center. Just did a quick inspect. I'm like, okay, let me rewind in your model. Go back to the, your very initial sketches where you started defining the location of these features. And sure enough, they were all dimensioned from corners and edges and they were not dimensioned on center lines and mm-hmm. they were not placed using like symmetrical constraints. Yeah. And so that was a great example of on of like, oh, okay, conceptual thing I failed to tell you. I'm a big fan of constraints first and then dimensions. Mm-hmm. So things that you want to be parallel, want to be perpendicular, rather than giving them 90 degree dimensions, give them perpendicular constraints. Just That's right. Bam, put it in there. Yeah. And I love symmetrical constraints. I use symmetrical constraints all the time. And realizing that you save yourself a lot of dimensioning work if you have constraints that are driven by the critical dimensions of your model, mm-hmm. conceptually makes sense, but isn't necessarily intuitive to a person when they're building a base sketch early on and not thinking through the implications of what will happen to everything downstream if I change a few of these dimensions, but don't change other ones. Mm-hmm. Everything shifts subtly. And then I, you know, I happen to notice it, but we could have gone and machined that part. It was an actual thing we were making for our own use in-house. I could have gone and machined that part and then been like, why are these holes 30 thou off? Yeah, you find out the hard way. Gosh. <laughs> you go to assemble the thing. It's like, this is supposed to fit inside that, but these holes don't line up. Yeah. You know, when I was a SolidWorks user, I went to a, an open house from our reseller down the street. And in the seminar, there was a statement, which I'll say, which at the time was incendiary to me. But uh, when I say it now, I get it. He said, the best designs are lazy designs. Let me show you how to be a lazy designer. Yeah. If you can just work off symmetry and where things like like I would wish that in Fusion, when I hit the R key for rectangle in a sketch, yep. it would default to a center rectangle, oh, not no. a corner. You would not like that? Oh, I don't agree. Really? No. Well, I like to use construction rectangles as a defining kind of geometry to place things that would otherwise have to have an aligned distance that's mm-hmm. kind of hard to measure in real life. And so I often, when I know I'm going to place something, I will snap from a known location, a construction rectangle, and then place all, do all the rest of my drawing. And lastly, go back and dimension that rectangle to pull things in to the horizontal and vertical spacing that I want. So you're locating your non-construction features off of the corners? Yes, often. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. If I have a series of holes and they need to be spaced and they're out in the middle of some plate somewhere, Mm -hmm. rather than dimensioning them, I just find it easier to visualize and make sure that the, the dimensioning tool dimensions the thing I want. Because if I just click from one circle center to the other, and then I have to select which type of dimension do I want, an aligned dimension or vertical dimension. Like I don't like messing with those menus. I want to just snap a circle. Yeah. And then when they're on that, snap a circle at each corner sure. of that square. And then if I want, I can drag the whole thing around as a group Yeah, yeah and then go. dimension it and then constrain the square to whatever other geometry it's affected by and needs to be related to. That's just a a trick I like to use a lot. I use the center square option very rarely. But okay, if I'm doing this right in my head, you could use center rectangle and still get your base feature because you don't, do you initially dimensioned the rectangle? No, the rectangle is undimensioned. Okay. It's two clicks, a top left and a bottom right. Yes. Yeah. So if I went center rectangle, I'd have to snap my rectangle and then I need to use a coincident constraint to lock. I'd either have to draw the rectangle before I drew any circles. I normally draw the first circle, then rectangle, then second circle. Oh, I see. Are we talking fusion? Or are you talking uh, fusion inventor? or inventor? Okay. All right. I'd have to go revisit that because I do think a center rectangle is going to be a center click and drag one of the corners and it scales proportionately. I don't know. I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> okay. Let me ask you this. When you start a fresh design, yes. is your first feature snapped to the origin, XYZ line zero? Or do you just uh, go freeform in the middle of space? It depends. Okay. If, if the thing is going to have a lot of symmetrical features and I want to keep that origin at the center so that I can use and not have to, I, I create a lot of mid planes. Mid planes mm-hmm. are one of my favorite tools to work sure. with symmetrical features because then I can do all kinds of mirroring commands and I can throw sketches on that mid plane pretty easily and extrude them in either direction. But in Inventor, I basically never lock to origin. In Fusion, I do. Okay. Got it. Wow. So if you put anything out publicly 
of how to do things, you're going to get all this pushback of, oh, I would never do that. I think Saunders put out a video like eight different ways to draw a cube. Yeah. And I reference that just in conversation because whether it's replying to a comment or something, because there's a lot of ways to do the exact same thing. And are some better than others? Yeah, arguably. For me, I'm probably eight out of 10 rectangles that I sketch are from some type of central feature. But if I know it's a non-symmetrical design, it really doesn't matter. Like I'd rather, in a weird way, I'd rather have my numbers be positive. I know that sounds weird, but I'd rather snap to a corner and then go like up and to the right, which are both positive directions on a CNC mill. Yep. I don't know. But that's just me. That's like even just the question of if I need a series of holes that are going to be symmetrical, like a grid, I've got a center line and I need a row of three holes down on one side of it and a row of three holes on the other side you know, this arrangement yes. down my center line. Yeah. And I want the, those holes to be six inches apart from their matching hole. I usually draw the center pair, dimension one hole, use a symmetrical constraint on the other. And then the question is, do you dimension hole to hole or do you dimension hole to center line? I always dimension the centers of holes. And then I give the yeah, holes yeah, a yeah. diameter. Say if that the again. Holes need to be six, if the holes need to be six inches apart, yeah. And they are symmetrical around a center line in your mm-hmm. sketch. Oh. Do you dimension three inches from one hole to center to the center line, or you do, do you dimension six inches center to center, hole to hole? I would go the lazy route and I would mirror it on that center line. Really? Yeah. I generally don't like, I don't like stacking patterns. Sure. Yeah. So well, I use. That's a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, like if you if you create one thing, you mirror it this way, and then you mirror them this way, and then you mirror them. No, no, no. That stuff gets, gets stupid so and, fast. And a lot of times it doesn't work. Yeah. Fusion will sometimes reject some of those lazy moves. Yeah. I love rectangular patterns. I use them all the time. Mm-hmm. But there are certain habits when I watch other people's fusion tutorial videos, I often see them doing certain things in an order that I'm like, oh no, that's backwards. I don't yeah. do it that way. And then I, if they watched me model, they'd probably look under my desk to see if I'm wearing clown shoes <laughs> <Of> sometimes. <laughs> hey, you said that, okay, in a previous podcast, I told you that I use the S key. Yes, I've started using it. I love really? it. I, I really not mess with that at all. It, it, so taking the time, this is mm. one of those things where it pays to become a power user in almost anything. When you're, even the details of, all the various menus and setup options in my car. My Honda was very simple. You turn it on and you either want a podcast or you want music. There's all mm-hmm. this stuff buried in the touchscreen menu and almost all of it's irrelevant. And eh, you just, I don't even mess with it that much. I have to change the clock because I live in a daylight savings time area. But my Audi has way more settings and you can configure suspension and throttle response and all this stuff. And so one time I just sat down in my driveway and I got the manual out and I got my phone out and I watched a couple of short YouTube videos. And then I literally clicked through every single menu I could find. Just, all right, I'm in this main category. I'm going to click into every single submenu and just look at what's there. And then back out, next main category, click in, down, 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 over, over, down, down, and just see everything that's there. Most of it I left alone, didn't touch at all, but I just want to poke around and see it. Mm-hmm. And the difference between a person who knows how to do certain things on their phone and a person who has a really solid stable of apps that they use for certain things, like if I need to make a video clip that's got four short video clips chunked together into one with an intro and voiceover, here's how I do it. Knowing which messaging apps compress images more, which ones accept larger video files better, and then understanding which ones you can add and delete people from groups and which ones, all these different things. When you learn those things and you really have a good handle on it, the speed with which you can do similar tasks is really extraordinary. Yeah. But in Fusion, I had not gotten there. And I was just, there are many little things. One of the, it frustrates me. In Inventor, if I want to measure something, check a dimension, it's the M key. Measure. Measure. Yeah. And in Fusion, no. <laughs> I had the exact same thing coming from SolidWorks. I had, I think it's an M key, or at least I said, well, this is measure. I assigned M to it. <laughs> but but I, yeah, it's, I could just go back and remap it. I think it's I. It's inspect. It is. It is I. Um, yeah. And the other thing that functions differently that I use a lot is project geometry and project cut edges. Yeah. P. And one of the main differences is in Inventor, before you select something to project, you can choose whether the projection 
will be construction lines or not. Okay. So construction yep. is a toggle next to your projection thing in the ribbon. So if you're trying to grab a whole bunch of geometry from the opposite side of the model and just bring it through to your current face and you want it all to be construction geometry, fine. You just say construction and then project and you hit those features and they jump through. In, in, in Fusion, you project them all and then you select them all and you hit X and change them to construction. Mm-hmm. As, unless I've missed it, there isn't a way to pre-toggle construction before you project. If you project, I, I can kind of envision a checkbox. But I don't think so. Maybe I've missed it. Yeah. If it's there, that would always be my preference because if I've started drawing and I've got a bunch of real lines and shapes out there, and then I project through a bunch of things that I just want for construction reference, if they come through as real lines and then I have to selectively fit around my current things that are already drawn and then convert just the construction ones to construction, Mm -hmm. that's a lot more work for me because I can't use the just drag a square, capture everything in the square because it's going to grab other geometry that I've drawn that I want to keep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what's frustrating for me when I project something in Fusion? I have to remember if I'm projecting like kind of a, a hole onto yep. a plane, you don't want to select the cylindrical portion of the hole. You want to click the edge because if you select the cylinder, it's going to project the bottom of the hole and the top of the hole. And then I've gone in there and I click the projection that it's created hit X to toggle it to a construction. And I go, it's still solid. Why is it not dotted? One of them is. Yeah. (laughs) It did exactly what I told it to do. So yeah, that's one of the things. Quick hot tip right there. Hey, I just opened Fusion. Let me do this. Let me do L. That's how I get into a sketch because it just toggles to line. I select my plane and I'm going to do that. I'm going to do a quick extrude. Okay. So in this case, when you project something, P for project, no, there is no, there's projection link, which is what you want, but there's no ability to instantly turn it into a construction feature. And I would prefer that. One other setting that Inventor has that I like that I don't have in Fusion is anytime I open a new, create a new file in Inventor, I can have it set that it automatically opens in the sketch environment on the XY plane. Okay. It just creates the file to that point. So I'm not even having to keystroke to start my first sketch. It just uh. new file, standard part, inches, bam, oh, right like in the that. sketch. Yeah. But Fusion doesn't seem to have that checkbox. Inventor has many more document and applications, settings, preferences, options available on the back end. Fusion, it seems fairly simplified in that hmm. regard. Interesting. I'm even having a glitch right now where the toggle isn't working. Oh. Gosh, that's just weird. I don't know. It just got updated, so who knows? Yeah. Anyways. But yeah, the ability to draw basic things so many different ways is pretty wild. How much do you use the offset command? Fairly often because we'll take a part profile, especially for vacuum work holding, six inch by six inch. We want to offset the vacuum gasket groove by 20, yep. 30 thousands. Collect, you can actually click on the face so it highlights the entire feature and then hit O or I'll typically do a projection because I don't want to offset the gasket on everything and then just toggle it in. I, I will say that I think SolidWorks had a better offset tool that would follow lines and I can't articulate why it was better at this point, but I just know that it was a point of frustration when I moved from SolidWorks to Fusion, but I don't know. I'm going to speculate that the Fusion team does want to hold back some features to not be a direct copy of SolidWorks. And I think if they do get enough complaints, they'll just say, okay, yeah, we'll add that. It's no longer, oh, you're copying SolidWorks. It's like, no, our user base has spoken. And this was at the top of the Fusion roadmap. Gotcha. Yeah. One of the things that was interesting is Al Wetmo years ago had me join a Friday company-wide thing. He brings on different guests and they can speak to the Fusion team. Okay, here's kind of how naive I was, or maybe people would be in the same boat, but I logged in. It was something like 6 a.m. because they wanted to pick up the East Coast. Oh, and the Birmingham, England team. Al's there. Hey, Al, how's it going? We're talking. I see the Zoom room fill up and it's five guys, 10, 25. As we start to hit that 6 a.m. mark, there was like hundreds of people on this Zoom call, which I did not know you could do. And he's like, okay, we're going to talk about this and then we're going to throw it over to Jay and then he can log off and then we'll finish the Friday meetup. 
And I'm going, oh my gosh, I'm presenting to like the, f- the fusion team, 400. I want to say it's about 400 people. And Al asked me, hey, is there anything from your perspective that you would want to see changed? And I said, well, I moved to fusion from feature cam. And one of the things that I really liked in feature cam is I could highlight a tool path and I could use my arrow keys and I could stare at the screen and see the preview tool path and step down with the arrow path and see, here's my adaptive. And then my finish pass, which is only 10 thousandths off. Did it actually change? Can you picture that? Like, here's yeah. my adaptive. Yeah. And, and step down. I could see all those tool paths. And I said, from my perspective, my humble perspective, I don't think fusion uses arrow keys effectively, if at all. And I went back and they don't use arrow keys. Like for example, in SolidWorks, when you have a design, you could create a nudge, like in, in Photoshop, you can nudge it by using the arrow keys and you can define that nudge distance. In SolidWorks, you could rotate your model in a set degree. So if I'm creating something at something like 25 degrees, there's no real, by clicking on the view cube, I can never get to straight on 25 degrees. I know that doesn't bother you, but it bothers me. So I could just go, okay, here, I'm going to look at this as the closest face, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25. Or I could just go into preferences and just say every time I arrow, it moves 25 degrees. So they said, okay, that's good feedback. And I think that Autodesk had just acquired feature cam maybe in the previous year. So I knew there was a feature cam team that had been kind of ingested by the fusion team. And like two years later, I get a, a DM on Instagram. One of the guys, Liberty Machine, I think he closed his shop and he's a full-time Autodesk guy. I can't remember his name, but he said, Hey, do you see the latest, whatever the release they implemented your idea? And I'm like, Oh, first of all, I'm honored. Second, I'm like, why did it take like over a year, I feel like the coders could have just gone back and said, okay, yeah, let's, when you highlight a toolpath and you press a down arrow, it highlights the toolpath under it in the cam workspace. But I think they do need to hear that or it needs to be heard loud. And when you have the attention of the entire fusion development team, around 400 people, that's a loud voice right there. Yep. And fun fact, I've not been invited back. How about that? Changing gears briefly, I had my Vistage meeting today. So my chapter meets mm-hmm. once a month. And one of the things we had, we had a guest leading the first portion of the meeting today, and we were talking about decision-making, rest and stress, and things we can and can't control in Mm -hmm. our companies. And one of the exercises that I thought was interesting was he had us list side-by-side columns, things I can control and things I can't control. Mm -hmm. And then pick some things out of that list later and discuss how those are impacted by stress and how those are impacted by rest. Mm. And one of the things that as we were brainstorming, one of the things I was coming away with as I looked back on how my work has gone recently is I have a very high mix of stuff to do during the day. I can be training an employee here and then stepping in to help with a customer service problem here and then making sure that material got ordered from a vendor here and checking on this thing and then sitting down and doing some CAD on a new prototype project and then sitting down and answering some emails and then reviewing some financials. Like it just, there's no end to the variety of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was finding that if there were difficult decisions or potentially consequential decisions that I needed to make, that it was very easy to push those off in the day and say, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'll do that later. And then what would happen would be, it's like leaving a shoe in the middle of the floor. And every time you walk through the room, you trip over it because everything else you're trying to do in the day, that decision is still there waiting for you. And if you get bogged down in all the mundane, urgent stuff, mm-hmm. not, not essential, not important, but right. urgent and kind of mundane, yeah. then at the end of the day, everybody else has left. I'm sitting in my office and I go, oh, I didn't make a decision about this or that thing. I need to get that decision done before I leave today. Yeah. At which point I'm making the decision alone. I don't have anybody else in the office I can bounce the idea off of. I don't have anybody there that I can delegate part of it to. And I'm tired. It's the end of the day. I've been working all day. I've been doing a ton of different stuff. My batteries are really low. Mm-hmm. And then I have to make this consequential decision. And so the idea of, in addition to our morning meeting, potentially trying out three, maybe even five days a week, a really brief admin check-in meeting, because our admin team is me and two managers, basically. Having a really brief meeting that follows our whole team morning meeting. And it's just 
key decisions that have to get made today and priorities from the admin side. So we start the day on the same page. And if there are critical decisions, I can either delegate them right then Mm -hmm. or say, we've got five minutes to talk about this. We've read all these emails. We've considered these different options. What should we do about this thing? And then decide it. And then immediately hand off the implementation of the idea. Like, okay, we're going to go with this vendor over this vendor. Go ahead and respond to those quotes that were sent over. Let this vendor know we're not doing that. Let this vendor know we are doing that. Go ahead and put in the PO officially and take action on it. But if we wait till the end of the day and I'm stuck batting cleanup on those important things, the quality of my decisions is going to be worse. I think John Saunders said something like, if you can only make 100 decisions a day, that's all the gas tank you have for decision-making, prioritizing the most consequential decisions earlier in the day when you are best rested. But even if I get up tired, if I had a bad night's sleep or not enough hours in bed and I get up tired, I am not going to progressively get better rested as mm-hmm. I work throughout the day. Yeah. It's not how that works. Maybe I take a cat nap and I actually just bought myself, I had a comfy-ish Ikea chair in my okay. office. And I just got that out of there and bought a pretty simple folding zero gravity like deck chair. Nice. Because the Ikea chair is fine to sit in, but it has arms and they're high and you can't really sit in it and do laptop work, but it's too upright to sit in and take a quick nap. <laughs> and so it was this comfortable, inviting looking chair that was yet not nice to do work in. And I didn't have two. There isn't room in, the, in my office for two. So I couldn't have sit down face-to-face meetings in there. I just had this chair that was calling to me. And every time I sat down in it, I either got frustrated trying to do work in it, or I started to fall asleep and was uncomfortable, or I actually yeah. fell asleep and woke up with like my head over to the side of my neck all cricked. Oh, and so I just, you know, this chair, it's just, it's leaving. It's a nice chair. There's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's a great good. chair to sit in a living room and hang out and talk with your friends. It's a worst of all worlds yeah. chair to have in my office. That's awesome. And just recognizing that and saying it out loud, saying, I have this piece of furniture in my office. I see it every day. I sometimes sit in it and it never helps me work better. It always turns into an obstacle that I end up having to fight. Can I throw a term out that's going to define what that chair is? What? So are you familiar with Alex Hormozzi? Nope. Okay. H-O-R-M-O-Z-I. So he's kind of been around for a couple of years, puts out lots of just, he would be a modern day stoic philosopher. Okay. And what, everything's like non-emotional. It's very much a, a rational approach to things. He's just made some really bold decisions and it's just like, just owned it. And I love it. It's little bite-sized chunks where you're like, I can do something with that bit of information. Oh, today. I know this guy. The big muscular workout guy. He's run a franchise kind of that revolves around gyms and, and supplements and, and he's legit. I can certainly say that. He was actually on the Dave Ramsey program. So I feel like once you get on the Dave Ramsey stage, you've been vetted enough where old-fashioned Dave is going to accept you, then it's probably some decent grandmother slash Bible wisdom that okay. uh, Dave espouses. So one of the things that stood out years ago is no half measures. And we actually were, t- I was talking about it this morning. We had a decision that about whether we put, we upgrade our current AC unit that will work perfectly when we have an upgraded office. And in the meantime, we will temporarily put another pipe out to the shop so it'll cool it. Then we'll save $11,000 because instead of going to two seven and a half tons, we do one seven and a half ton and upgrade one our three to five. It was so convoluted. I go, wait a minute, no half measures. We're buying the two seven and a half ton units. We're going to spend the 11000 extra, but no half measures. That chair that you were sitting in was a half measure chair. Not yeah. enough to sleep in, not enough to work in. And man, that stuff is just everywhere. I find myself going, wait a minute, this is a half measure. Just make a better decision. A term that I've heard for that is a grazed woodlot. So like if you- I live in California. I have no idea what that means. Okay. So like pasture, open field with tons of grass, great for grazing cattle and the other things on. Okay. Wooded forest, great for harvesting lumber, whatever you can, they're, they're just- a grazed woodlot is kind of a mix. It's like kind of a field, but it's got trees in it. And it's just oh, like, yeah, it's, okay. it's perfectly combined to then be useless for almost anything. Got it. And, and those okay. kinds of things, it's the jack of all trades, master of none, the yeah. tool that does everything, doesn't do anything well yeah. kind of problem. And 
in the things I can control and things I can't control, I actually put down my office furniture <laughs> is one of the things I can control. Yeah. And thinking about that, not just incidentally, oh, I can get rid of one chair, but every single thing that's in my office, I can control. There's nothing in my office that's not within my power to remove if I don't want it there. And the things that are there because I've either chosen to put them there or I have allowed other people to put them there. And my office often becomes a drop zone for things that I don't have time to deal with. And I just stick them in my office so that the physical artifact is there and I don't forget about it. Yeah. But if I have a really crazy day, I can leave at the end of the day and there's like six things that don't belong there yeah. sitting on my desk and they're going to start chirping at me or screaming at me. Yeah. The moment I walk in first thing in the morning, I'm going to get derailed. And that recognizing how I actually use my office space, if it's cluttered, I can clutter myself out of my own office. I can have things in there that are distracting enough to me that I can't work with them in the room. And yet I'm too stupid to take them out of the room and put them somewhere else. Or so you don't when, see it in all fairness well, to yourself. People don't see their junk at times. Well, yeah, you don't see it, but it's just background noise. Yeah, true. You can articulate that it's there even if you're not consciously aware of it. And yeah. once you become aware of it, you are consciously aware of it. Sure. Yeah. Like, it's like grandma's wallpaper. I don't notice the flowery print country wallpaper in grandma's house anymore. It's just what yeah. it is. But if I were to walk in as a buyer, I'd be like, oh my gosh, that's got to go. Popcorn ceilings, that's coming down too. That type of thing. But yeah. But so the, one of my improvements today was I got a rolling wire rack and I started moving a whole bunch of stuff. So I've now got a, an Andrews rolling catastrophe shelf. Yeah. And it's got prototypes and it's got random things. It's got some printed out paper stuff. It's got anything that was in my office mm -hmm. that doesn't need to be there now has a place to go outside my office that's not shared space with anything else. It's not inventory and some of Andrew's random stuff. It's just this shelf is for Andrew's office stuff and prototypes he's working on only. Nothing else goes on here. Mm -hmm. And I have a place in the back of Bay 1 out of the way behind one of the mills where I can just stash it. Mm -hmm. So I know where it is. I can always go check on it. And if I'm looking for a prototype part I'm working on, it's there, but it's not intruding on my mental space by sitting in a place where I can't avoid seeing it. Yeah. Because I'm so distractible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember seeing in some, something you texted me, you were showing me something on your screen, but you had post-its on your monitor and one said no stirring or prioritize no. completion versus starting. Or so on my programming monitor, I have... There are three things. The first one is don't churn. And that don't churn, churn yeah. is that rapid channel surfing from task to task to task yeah. where you don't actually move any ball downfield very far. You just tap this one and tap that one and tap this one. And sometimes that's what those jobs need. If you delegated something and you need to ping somebody to get something back, you just need to tap that task. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of cases, what I actually want to do is take one ball, pick it up, get it all the way across the goal line and get it out of here. Yeah. And then I have the Winston Churchill quote that I really like, the action this day, mm. which apparently he kept a big red stamp on his desk that said action this day. And when anytime something came across his desk that he considered to be sufficiently urgent, he would stamp it that way and then immediately hand it off and his staff would not stop working on it until it was resolved. One of the famous examples is the Code Breakers, the Alan Turing group at Bletchley Park, wrote to the ministry. And requested resources because they didn't have enough paper, they didn't have enough people, they didn't have enough of all kinds of things. And their letter got to Churchill's desk and he basically said, okay, action this day. These guys get anything they want. No holds barred, no cap, anything they want, get it to them today. And that approach where somebody pulls out all the stops, clears all the traffic off the road, Bruce Almighty style, just like the parts of the road, all the cars are gone, go. That as an approach is a gear that sometimes I want to have if an opportunity presents itself mm -hmm. or if a particular project is lining up just right. Like we're in the zone on this today. We're doing this today. And sometimes a lot of projects will just linger in the background and they don't progress and they don't progress and they don't progress until one day I just say, we're starting and finishing that today. Yeah. You know what? We have a term for that in-house. We call the 95% rule. Okay. And we have a board and I haven't presented it as a board of shame, but it's like, we have all these ideas. We have all these things. We have all these designs or fixtures that are 95%. We put in so much effort and they're still not implemented for our either time gain or financial gain. Yep. And you don't 
want things on your 95 completion board, it's okay to have something on 20% complete. That's part of the process, but 95% is painfully, it's robbed all the resources without giving anything back. It's like a newborn baby. That's exactly what it's like. (laughs) (laughs) And then the last thing on the board is the prioritize finishing over starting. Yeah. Yeah. And that is exactly dovetails with the 95% rule, which is if I have a project that's at 10% and a project that's at 95% and I've got about 5% left to give today, Yep. overwhelmingly productive if I get that 95 to 100, basically inconsequential if I get that 10 to a 15. Yeah. That was another thing that I picked up from Alex Hormozzi. He doesn't say anything that's new or novel. He's kind of an aggregator of wisdom and advice and things like that. And he's well-spoken. He speaks as if he's reading it. It's incredible. But he's said like, hey, the biggest way to grow your business or get stuff done is to focus on something that you know intuitively what you need to do and then pull all resources onto that, whether it's your time, whether it's the money, whether it's a team. Hey, we're just going to do this. I think that's probably my next stage of growth is pulling a team together, which I think I'm doing better and better over the years. But it really does require, like we have five products we're launching this year. It only happens or is happening because we've standardized using a Trello board. And do you use Trello? I can't remember. I've messed around with it. We don't use it. We use Asana. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's same, same type of capability. So it has boards, which is a product development board. So that's the big thing. Picture the big sheet of paper. Then you have lists, which are vertical columns. And yep. then in those lists, you have your little boxes, cards they're called. So one of the columns that I share with John, who's been kind of moved over to be my prototype machinist, it's for John. And in parentheses, it says only one. So you move a card. I don't dump five things onto John's list. I put one thing on as he progresses, he adds notes, he tags me in a comment, then he moves it back, either back, need a decision, a design decision, an order material order decision, or he moves it forward to the next step. And boy, we've gotten so much done. We've, I've had products that have been like either floating around in my mind or floating around somewhere on diffusion servers for literally years. And I'm going, no, this is the year that we do this. It's not about doing it. It's about the process. And in that process, you're going to find problems. You just need to go make it and go, oh, wow. I totally overlooked that. Like one time I designed a, I upgraded the Rotovice internal working features, did a whole production run got to the end. My main assembly guy, Jerry comes to me. He says, how are we supposed to assemble this? I go, what are you talking about? Are you joking? No, you could not get the sliding carrier into the T slot. Oh, well it worked in CAD just fine because objects in CAD are ghosts. They can pass through each other just fine. And it, it was just the fact that we just needed to get through and actually do stuff to circle back and then iterate on those designs. But it was about like aligning the team with that goal and then a Applying all resources to that. Actually, one of the things that got mentioned in the meeting this morning was it was an anecdote, and I don't know if there's a video of the interview, but I think the premise was Bill Gates and Warren Buffett got sat down side by side at an interview, and each one was given an index card and asked to write down the one thing they thought was most critical for success. And what they both wrote down was focus, Mm. not intelligence, not timing, not luck not capital, not innovation, but just focus. Wow. And I've been thinking about whether I want to diversify my company and make products outside the space I'm currently in and dabble in this or dabble in that. And all those things are fun and entertaining, and it can be beneficial for a business to have a diversified product family in their production queue, just because then you're not susceptible to the ebbs and flows of a single industry. Mm -hmm. But I'm also not ever going to be able to go as deep across three industries and know all the ins and outs of the actual use of the product Mm -hmm. as I possibly will be able to go if I stick to one. Yep. And going back and forth between those questions and going, is the upside more in the diversification or is the upside more in being an incredibly deep, deeply knowledgeable user of the products that I make? So I know what my users need. I know how they use the parts. And when I go to design the next generation of things, I don't actually have to look around at peer companies to see what they're doing and borrow and reflavor their ideas. I would like to be in a position where 
I essentially don't have any peer companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, blue ocean. And you can get too far ahead. You can get way out there and make things that the world's not ready for. Yep. But your kids are going to love it, he says in Back to the Future. So it, it definitely, being a decade early can kill your company. Yeah. But a lot of companies, when I look at what they've released, like, oh, new product from this or that company in the holster space, it literally looks like a bunch of people are walking shoulder to shoulder and they're all just taking turns looking left to right and they're all just walking together. And anytime somebody takes a step forward, the whole rest of the line within a reasonable time period takes that exact same step forward. Mm -hmm. You see the same features bleeding across all these products. You see the same language being used to describe it. You see the same cosmetic features and the same concepts being built in across all these different products from different companies. And companies that go out and really do something unusual are far less common. And sometimes those ideas are duds. Like Those ideas cluster very far to the ends of the bell curve. And they're either brilliantly innovative and they change something or they are incredibly poorly thought out. They add complexity and cost. They have features that just don't work. The number of absolutely crazily bad things that I've seen at shows like SHOT Show, which is the big firearms industry gun show every January, like the third floor or maybe the fourth floor, the upper floor in the convention center is a hallway with basically all the cranks, weirdos, and startups who have a product that hasn't really taken off yet. And when you walk through there, every once in a while, you see something brilliant. But most of the time, you see people who are completely married to an idea that is obvious to everybody else is inferior or non-functional for some compelling reason. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's great, it's great, it's great, it's great, except that in order to put that back in that, the user has to point the gun at themselves temporarily. <laughs> like think, things that are just like so obviously violating fundamental safety rules. Sure. <laughs> but the designer inventor is there and they are convinced it is brilliant. Passion like, run amok. Yeah. It, it solves a 10 cent problem and creates a million dollar problem. Yeah. But they are completely married to it. They cannot get out of that groove. Recognizing that I could go down that rabbit hole myself, some diversification, some just playing around with products in other spaces is probably healthy. Mm -hmm. It's probably beneficial just to keep my brain from running in too tight a circle. But I don't have any aspirations to scale up to be a global conglomerate Mm -hmm. that does all kinds of different things. I don't even understand. Well- the answer is money, but I don't even understand why big conglomerates end up happening. I don't understand who's motivated by that. Like we're a company, you've seen the two wolves meeting, like inside of you are two wolves and then they usually juxtapose two bizarre things. And one of them is inside of you are two wolves. One is a microwave. The other is the GAU-8 Avenger, which is the giant 30 millimeter nose cannon from a Thunderbolt 2, a mm-hmm. Warthog. And it says, you are General Electric. And like the idea that the General Electric Company makes consumer grade home appliances and also makes some of the most legendary pieces of firepower technology, it's completely schizophrenic mm-hmm. to have a company split that far apart into those different things. And I don't ever want to have a company that does that many different things. Yeah. Even if I could, I don't think I'd enjoy it. Man, I have anyway. I know you have a hard stop. I have a lot more to say about this. I'll preview it. I'm kind Five of five more minutes. Swing roll. Okay. Well, I'm going this direction of diversifying. I don't know how to announce it first. Do we preview it here, or do we do it on the probably the YouTube channel? We'll get better traction. But yeah, I've given that a lot of thought over the years. Not a proponent of whenever you hear like someone sold a piece of property and made four or five x in five years. You go, gosh, am I missing something? But at the same time, those are the stories that get written. All the people that owned it for 20, 30, 40 years, pass it on to their children, especially in the industrial building. There's, I tried to buy a building from this lady. I knew her father passed away when he was in his late eighties. And I told her, look, I really love this building, this location. I know it's up for lease. I want to just buy it. And she said, nope, not interested. Okay. Can I make you a deal? Because I'll pay above premium. And she said, nope, this is going to survive at least three generations. 
my grandfather worked hard enough to buy this and he knows that it's going to give at least three generations financial freedom. So I go, Hmm. well, yeah, I get that, but there's a market that wants to buy right now. My whole thing is where are the buildings that I can buy that I know, because I don't know real estate. I don't want to be a landlord. I purposely sold a house that everyone's like, you got to rent it out. No, I don't want to be a landlord. It's a distraction. And even now, I'm just talking with my finance guy, but just talking about how like I, I need to get out of individual stocks because it's a distraction. When I wake up and I'm looking at 6.30 a.m. when the market opens, seeing how stocks are opening, doing, it's a distraction. I should not be looking at individual stocks that at best in a year might make me, maybe I'll be happy if there's double digit gains. But it's one of those things where I, I realize, I, what do I know? Where can I put energy, money, time, all these resources, finite resources? And then shift them into something moving forward without having to be the expert, without having to be full disclosure, 100% passionate about it. I'm passionate about manufacturing, especially work holding, but not some of these other parallel industries. But we know process, we know lean. What can I do from a lean perspective that I can kind of go parallel in a different industry that I can rock it? Like John Saunders, when he toured my facility, not this one, but oh, actually two facilities before. It always stood out. He made a funny comment. He said to John Grimsno, he said, I toured Pearson Work Holding. It doesn't matter what they're making. They could be making ballerina slippers. It's all about the process that they've developed through lean. That really stood out to me. He's talking about me and I go, yeah, what is more important is not what we make, but how we make it. That is, is something way more valuable and digging into and being passionate about. And that does help me in my own mind, de-risk a lot of the choices that I want to try. Yeah. Options I could pursue because I'm not risking everything on one rocket that has to make it into space. Sure. Blows up on the launch pad. The entire company is kaput. Yeah. With the technology that we have, with the machines we have, with the people we have, if we needed to pivot and make something else, we could pivot and make something else. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And we would have to build the details of the processes mm-hmm. from scratch. But the concepts of the processes we already have. Or hard skills, soft skills, those are already in place. Yeah. Yeah. And the shop layout would change, our inventory racks would change, our standardized bin sizes would change. Who knows what would change? Things mm-hmm. would change. Yeah. But the overall conception, the DNA of the company and how we do things could be adapted to make all kinds of other things. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think I've probably said this before on the podcast, I like making holsters. I believe in it. I would never be interested in running a company that made things I didn't believe in. Mm-hmm. Like, right? For me, I would not be comfortable running a video game company. Mm-hmm. And it's not because there's something inherently wrong with video games, but the same way that if I worked for a pharmaceutical company and we made opioids, I would have a moral conflict internally about how those get abused and how they destroy people's lives. So mm-hmm. video games, super fun. However, also consuming an enormous amount of people's lives. Mm-hmm. So I want to make things that I believe in, but there are many, many things that I could make that I believe in themselves are good for the world on the whole, mm-hmm. that I'm not making things that are merely entertaining, although entertainment is not bad, mm-hmm. but it's like, okay, do I want to make cotton candy or do I want to learn how to cook the world's greatest steak? Those are both edible, but I believe in one of them in a way I don't believe in the other yeah, one. Right. Yeah. That's good stuff. So, yeah. Anyway, great to talk to you. Likewise. Catch up next week. All right. See you then.